1: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, your host for New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're here with Louis Manan. He's a professor of English at Harvard University and a staff writer at New Yorker. Earlier this year, he published The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. Welcome to the show, Professor Menand. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. So, Before we dive in here, let's uh, talk a little bit about the cover selection.
0: Yeah, the cover was an interesting problem to find the ideal image for this book, which, as you said, covers the first 20 years of the Cold War, roughly 1945 to 1965. Um, And we tried various possibilities, but one that I came up with, along with my friend Todd Lippi who helped design the cover, is a photograph of the Statue of Liberty um, in New York Harbor by an anonymous photographer, um, and uh, it's a black and white picture. The publisher was not keen about the black and white part, but it just seemed to us a perfect symbolic image for what the book is about, because the statue is seen from behind facing out onto what looks like kind of a limitless seascape. And one side of the water is glistening with sunlight and the other side is dark. And the glistening and dark aspects to this picture seem beautifully representative of the situation of the United States in the Cold War in which many wonderful things happened. In the world of art and ideas, and also in the opening up of American society, and also many dark deeds were done. So I thought the uh, the the uh, image was perfect for that. And the other thing that I liked about it was that the statue is facing out towards the world, because the big theme of the book is that everything that happens in this period in the United States is a consequence of a global interchange of ideas and art and creativity and people that produces what we think of as post-war American culture, but it's actually an international culture. So as I say in the preface, American culture at the end of the Cold War was really the product of the free world and hence the
1: title of the book. So you begin your intellectual history rather than a history of ideas of books talking to books with George Kennan and uh, Hans Borgenthal. Um If possible, can you elucidate the connection between the two in terms of the policy of containment and uh, the balance of power?
0: Sure. I had to begin with George Kennan because Kennan was the American diplomat who formulated <clears throat> the doctrine of containment, which apart from a lot of rhetoric about liberation and rollback and so forth on the part of United States was basically the American foreign policy until Vietnam, which is where my book ends because Vietnam is the crisis of containment. Um, so we'll probably talk about that much later on in our conversation. But Kennan, as probably most of your listeners know, was the diplomat who uh, wrote the long telegram. Uh, this is a telegram that he sent from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow to the State Department. In February 1946, explaining to the State Department, which had asked him to do so, uh, Stalin's intentions or what Kennan thought Stalin's intentions were. And the telegram, said to be the longest diplomatic telegram in United States history, some 6,000 words, uh, was picked up in Washington by various government officials who were excited by Kennan's analysis. Uh, Kennan was brought back to the United States um, and given a job teaching at the War College, also traveling around the country talking about his interpretation of Stalin and the Soviet Union, which was a puzzle to a lot of Americans in the media post-war period. Um, And then in 1947, uh, he joined the State Department, and in that capacity, he wrote what's called the X-Article, which appeared in the Journal of Foreign Affairs in June 1947, uh, and the title of the article is Sources of Soviet Conduct. It's called the X-Article because, as a government official, Kennan did not want to be identified as the author of the article, lest it be mistaken for official policy. But he was outed almost immediately, uh, and everybody knew that Kennan had written it. So the Doctrine of Containment, to get to your point, um, is a realist doctrine. It states that the United States should not worry about what goes on within the Soviet Union or communist countries in general. They can do whatever they want within their own borders. It's their business, even if they're violating human rights or doing other things that the United States regards as um, evil. But the United States does have an interest in uh, preventing communist countries from expanding their sphere of influence. At the expense of the United States' own national security interests. So, to put it in a nutshell, the doctrine of containment says keep communists in their box by resisting, when needed, possibly asymmetrically, efforts by the communists to expand into, let's say, Western Europe or later on, obviously, Southeast Asia. Um, but we don't. But they will destroy themselves with their own inefficiencies. Soviet communism is not built to last. uh, And if we just are patient and apply the doctrine of containment, of resistance to Soviet expansion, it will self-destruct. So Kennan was not a figure who was much given to citing other thinkers as sources for his own thought. But that, as I said, is the doctrine of realism, which he picked up probably when he was a student in the 1920s at the University of Berlin, because Realpolitik is a German notion. And essentially, the idea is that rather than pursuing foreign policy goals on the basis of principles, legal or moral principles, which is often called Wilsonian liberalism or liberal internationalism, which is very much the spirit of international relations thought in the period after the First World War, that all the nations should be concerned about Is preserving their own national interests. They should have a cold calculation of what those interests are and should stand up for them when they feel that they are threatened. So uh, the doctrine of realism then became, or the international relations theory known as realism, then became a dominant part of American international relations uh, uh, academic pursuits. And this was also facilitated not only by Kennan's theory of containment, but by an émigré political scientist named Hans Morgenthau, who wrote a book called Politics Among Nations right after the war, in which he essentially promoted the theory of realism. So realism displaces liberal internationalism or Wilsonian liberalism as a dominant foreign policy perspective on the part of American academics and on the part of the American
1: government. So how did the idea of totalitarianism first emerge in U.S. political cultures? If you could talk a little bit about George Orwell's uh, anti-totalitarian role and uh, his th- thought, I believe, was shaped by uh, James Burnham. And also um, address uh, real briefly uh, C. Wright Mills.
0: Okay, well, that's a handful. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the term totalitarianism was coined in Italy in the 1920s to describe Mussolini's uh, fascism. And it was used as a positive uh, description uh, <clears throat> because the idea was that under F- Mussolini's fascism, the state took over everything. There was essentially no private; nothing was private. Um, so the term gets used in a kind of uh, complementary way early on, um, and it gets a lot of traction in the 1930s because, of course, of the rise of Hitler in 1933, and To many people, this just looked to be the way history was going. A lot of people in the United States thought that uh, Mussolini was a great political leader. um, uh, And fewer people thought that Hitler was. But people did think that in mass societies, the only way really to govern them is through some kind of form of totalitarianism or authoritarianism. One of the people who believed this was a Trotskyist. Named James Burnham, who wrote a book called The Managerial Revolution, published in I think 1940 or 1941, which he predicted that in the future there will be these massive totalitarian states, which which will govern through a managerial class of experts, professionals, technicians, and so forth, who would essentially run a kind of provide a kind of techno. Uh, Guides to society. So Burnham thought this was inevitably the way history was going, using, of course, as examples of that, what was going on in Europe in the 1930s. And the book was actually extremely popular. It was a bestseller. It was named one of the top books of the year by places like Time Magazine. And one of the people who read it and was impressed by it, although he disagreed with it in certain respects, was George Orwell. Um, so. Orwell published several pieces about Burnham, including a little pamphlet called James Burnham and the Managerial Revolution, Um, and it's clearly an influence on 1984, because in 1984, as you remember, there are these three totalitarian states, Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania, that are fighting kind of an interminable Cold War um, among themselves, which nobody can win, and which operates social systems, which are extremely hierarchical and totalitarian. Um, And it's quite clear that Orwell got the idea for this, possibly from among other places, from Burnham's book, The Managerial Revolution. So um, if you remember, the end of 1984 is the famous torture scene in Room 101, uh, where... (laughs) Uh, O'Brien, who's the sort of uh, commissar figure, interrogates Winston, who's the apparatchik who is betrayed and gets captured and taken in to be converted back to the correct way of thinking. And their final exchange in this torture scene, which O'Brien is delivering electric shocks to Winston when he gives the wrong answer, is O'Brien's definition of power. What is the goal of power, he asks Winston. Winston gives a kind of mealy-mouthed answer, and he gets a shock. And O'Brien says, no, the purpose of power is power. Uh, That is why people want power. And this idea that power is sort of at the bottom of all political relations, power just seeks more power, is an idea behind Morgenthau's realism. Because for Morgenthau, it's about power. That's the realistic view of international relations. International relations are not governed by principles. At the end of the day, people just want to maintain and, if possible, extend their powers. So that's the concept that 1984 ends with, is there's this drive for power, which is inexpungible in human beings, and totalitarian systems tap into that. So one person, I think, was taken with this idea of the importance of power was C. Wright Mills, the sociologist. most influential book is called The Power Elite, and he tries to analyze the system of power that operates in the Cold War United States. Um, And that book um, had a big influence on the new left, in particular, Tom Hayden, when he was one of the founders of Students for a Democratic Society in 1962.
1: So, this is a specific question with pretty broad implications. How did uh, Jean Paul Sartre's notions of freedom revise Heideggerian Das Nix? Um, uh, if you can also address uh, Simone de Bouvier's existentialist offensive, um, um, that would be helpful as well.
0: Okay. Um, well, I'm not going to try to summarize Heidegger. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I would say. Is that the phrase that existentialism basically comes onto the scene right at the end of the war in 1945? Um, and that's the period that launches what Simone de Beauvoir, who was Sartre's partner, called the existentialist offensive. And most people probably, and it had a huge impact, particularly in the United States, it just sort of flooded the cultural field. People thought about existentialism in all kinds of contexts jazz, painting, lifestyle you know, whether there's a God, all that kind of thing, um, was just a big, it just became a kind of a fad, intellectual fad. Probably a lot of those people who talked about existentialism all the time had not read a word by Sartre or Beauvoir, but they Mm -hmm. thought they knew what what they were talking about. And I think the catchphrase that people knew um, from that thought is the phrase, existence precedes essence. So that's a Heideggerian notion. So this is Martin Heidegger, who Sartre studied carefully when he was writing his own major philosophical work, Being in Nothingness. the um, Heideggerian notion is that everybody knows what it means to be a human, to be a bumblebee. You know, if you're a bumblebee, you you know, wake up, you get out of the go out of the hive, you collect pollen, you bring it back, you do it all over again. Everybody knows what it means to be a dog. Somebody throws a ball, you go, you fetch it, you bring it back. But nobody really knows what it means to be a human being. There's no essence of humanness that all human beings agree upon. So our existence, the fact that we are physically existent, precedes our essence, what we are, qua human. So Sartre took this idea to mean that we can choose for ourselves who to be. We're not constrained, or we should not act as though we're constrained, by external circumstance. It doesn't just include the particular social or political arrangement that we're living in, but it includes things like our gender, our race, our identity. We should not allow those things to determine what kinds of choices that we make. So for an existentialist, all choices are the right choices as long as they're freely made. Those are made by a being, a human being, striving to accomplish something that that human being has chosen to try to accomplish. Um, And that's sort of the message of Sartrean existentialism. So as I say, this becomes a very powerful idea, even though it gets diluted in all kinds of ways in the post-war period.
1: So for Hannah Arendt, could you uh, elaborate a bit on the drafting of the 1951 origins of totalitarianism, as well as her self-identification as a political theorist?
0: Yeah, so Hannah Arendt was, of course, German, and she was a student of Martin Heidegger's, in fact as everybody probably knows, is listening, had an affair with him and was really kind of attached to him her whole life. Though There was a long period, the Nazi period, when they were out of touch. Um, and she was also a student of Karl Jaspers. So she was, and she was a great philosopher. So she was trained by some of the greatest philosophers in Germany. She wrote a doctoral dissertation on St. Augustine. Uh, and then Hitler came to power and she was forced to leave Berlin as a Jew and fled to Paris, as a lot of German Jews did in the 1930s. And then she lived there until 1940, when, of course, Germany invaded France and occupied Paris. And fled. she fled to the south of France, but she was interned in a concentration camp called Gurs. Um, and she managed to escape from the camp and uh, to find her husband, who had also been interned, also escaped from his uh, captivity, and they went to Marseille, which was the point of embarkation for people seeking to flee from Europe, and they just barely got out. They had help from a Hebrew aid society in the United States because to get out of France to get a visa to enter the United States, you needed some sponsor because you needed to show that you were not going to be a liability to the state. You wouldn't end up on welfare or the equivalent. So she had that. She had no English, very little English. She had about $40 in her pocket, and she lands in New York, uh, in a country she had zero interest in. Um, And she ended up staying here. Um, And she began writing quite a bit, and um, sometime in the late 40s, she decided to write a book about totalitarianism. Now, what's interesting about the story of that, which I think you're alluding to, was that originally – in her book proposal, she doesn't use the word totalitarianism and doesn't propose to write about it. She says she's going to write a book about imperialism and racism. And then she plays around with what the subject matter of the book will be for a little while and it ultimately decides that she's going to write about totalitarianism. So it was kind of a late thought of, on her part about what she exactly wanted the book to be about. It's a very big book, as you probably know. Um, it was quite uh, widely read and discussed when it came out in 1951, and then after Donald Trump was elected in ni- 2016, it, it had a second life because people were kind of interested in what Hunter Ran said about totalitarian rulers and so on. Um, so she, uh, so she wrote it, um, it, it uh, because she wrote it about totalitarianism. By the time it came out, which is just when the Cold War was really heating up, so to speak, 1951, just before the Korean War started, around the time the Korean War started, it it was a very hot subject. One of the things that's interesting about that is that she was only one of, I would say, at least half a dozen European emigres, just like her, who all wrote books on totalitarianism at exactly the same time. So in the late 40s and early 50s, there's about half a dozen pretty important books by pretty important thinkers Attempting to analyze totalitarianism, but everybody's forgotten those books. or almost all of them? I guess one that's not forgotten is Karl Popper's book, "The Open Society and Its Enemies." Most of them, you know, are not read anymore. But but Hannah Arendt's book did uh, did survive. Um,
1: if possible, can you elaborate a bit on her self identification as a as a political theorist versus a historian, etc.? Yeah,
0: that's it's I'll try, because <laughs> Hannah Arendt, and these things are important to Hannah Arendt, but she's not always totally clear about what she means by them. So she didn't think of herself as a philosopher, um, of course, she, although she was trained as a philosopher, because she thought that philosophy is essentially what we would call first philosophy. That is, It asks questions like the kind of question that Heidegger asks about being, um, or Plato asks about knowledge. In other words, eternal questions. So, for philosophers, the thing is the the thing that they're doing should not be involved with practical politics. And the big mistake she thought both Plato and Heidegger made was to get involved with politics. Um, And they made terrible mistakes because they just weren't trained to think about politics. So, she thought of herself as a political thinker because she was thinking about politics. That's the theme of. On um, the, uh, the origin of totalitarianism. It's also the theme of Eichmann and Jerusalem, the book that got her into a lot of trouble when it came out in 1963, I think, or 62. Um, her belief is that people need to engage in political action in order to preserve their liberty. Uh, and that was sort of the theme of Eichmann. Um, so, uh, so, so she distinguished herself from philosophers.
1: Can you discuss Lionel Trilling's perspectives on liberalism versus uh, mon- uh, money, especially in the context of his liberal imagine his nineteen fifty liberal imagination, and why did he reject Howell? <laughs>
0: um, so, um, <clears throat> so Trilling published the liberal imagination in nineteen fifty. Trilling in the nineteen thirties had briefly been associated with the Communist Party, at just in in the form of working for a front organization. he was not ever a member of the party. But he and his wife, Diana Trilling, were interested in communism, as a lot of intellectuals were in the early 1930s. But then following the Moscow trials, the Hitler-Stalin Act, and so on, like a lot of other intellectuals, he became anti-Stalinist in a fervent way. And the liberal imagination is written, is directed at essentially fellow travelers It's directed at liberals or progressives who don't think there's a problem with Stalinism. So what he means by liberal in the title of that book are all such people. And he essentially defines liberal, whether it's a communist, a Trotskyist, or just a kind of democratic party liberal as someone who thinks there's a straight road for human beings to health and happiness, who doesn't see that human beings are extremely complicated uh, beings and that it's very difficult to set them on a straight road to a rational and satisfying way of living. Um, Trilling's big interest when he wrote The Liberal Imagination and really throughout his career, that was his third book. I mean, published two books before that but his great interest was 19th century realist novel uh, a tradition that he called moral realism which shows these novels show he thought the irrational nature of human beings and a big subject of moral realism from jane austen through henry james is money so a lot of these novels are about inheritance uh, or people trying to marry into money, or people murdering for money, uh, people doing insane things for money, and the point is that human beings just do not operate rationally around money. I don't think anybody does. We hoard it, we waste it, we envy it. Um, you know, we marry for it. Some people kill for it. Um, so the old, the liberal idea of nineteenth-century liberalism that human beings are rational economic actors is ridiculous because one thing we're really not good at operating that rationally about is economics. So for Trilling, this showed him that progressive ideologies are utopian and that they're going to lead people down a bad path to some kind of coercive regime type, which forces people to be better. Uh, and he, re- he feared that. And so that's essentially what the whole second half of his career is about. Why did he didn't, didn't like Howell? So uh, one of Trilling's students, in fact, his most famous student, was Allen Ginsberg, which is pretty incongruous, really, um, if you try to think about it. But Ginsberg was a student at Columbia College in the 1940s. And like a lot of undergraduates, this is before Trilling published The Liberal Imagination, but he was already a figure. Uh, he became infatuated with Trilling. Uh, and he became friendly with Trilling. He showed his poetry to Trilling. This is all pre beat poetry. Um, and you know, they exchanged letters and so on. He went over for tea and whatnot. And Trilling was interested in Ginsburg because Trilling had been, of course, Jewish undergraduate at Columbia college back in the 1920s. And he sympathized with Jewish undergraduates. Uh, he always did. He sought them out. He cultivated them. He tried to help them in their, school in their career. And he was very big help to Ginsburg on a number of occasions when Ginsburg got into trouble. So they carry on this relationship for a number of years. And then I think Ginsburg leaves Columbia around 1948 or 1949. I guess it must be 1949 or 50. And he eventually, in 1954, he writes Howell. And he um, reads Howell for the first time in a poetry reading in San Francisco. Uh, a famous reading called the Sixth Gallery Reading, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, it, the, pub, the bookstore owner and publisher of, of um, City Lights Books, is in the audience. And it turns out that Ferlinghetti also had been a student of Lionel Trillings, and he was also infatuated with Trilling. He went to graduate school at Columbia, um, so they had that in common. And he asked Ginsburg if he could publish how. So Hal and Other Poems uh, was the manuscript that Ginsburg prepared for Ferlinghetti. And he mimeographed copies of it. Ginsburg was a big self-promoter. I mean, he was really good at that. He mimeographed copies of it to send to people who thought would be, he thought would be influential, who could help promote the book. And he sent a copy to Lionel Trilling wrote it back and said, I really don't like these poems. And the reason he didn't like them, of course, is because for Trilling, they were a kind of utopianism. They were, the idea of the poems that he objected to was this idea that human beings can be made better and that everything that's making life worse for people can be cured by some kind of utopian thinking, which is very much the way Ginsburg thought Um, he was a utopian. So, and I think uh, Trilling also didn't like the kind of adversarial posturing that he thought ginsberg was uh performing in that poem so he wrote this kind of kiss off note to ginsberg saying i'm sorry to say i really don't like these poems what's interesting is that ginsberg shows what a good promoter he was he didn't let the connection lapse you know he got he got it that the trillings didn't like him um but he stayed in touch with trilling and really their correspondence which is at columbia runs all the way up through the 1960s really yeah it's not very intimate after (laughs) 1956.
1: yeah so uh, this is another specific question. Uh, why was the idea of invariance, um, invariance, as well as binary oppositions, of course, so crucial for Claude Levi-Strauss and uh, Roman Jacobson's uh, structuralist science of culture?
0: Okay, that I'm not going to try to do in a podcast.
1: <laughs> but,
0: uh, so I would just tell the story this way. That, uh, so Claude Levi-Strauss was, a, of course, French anthropologist. And he got started because he was offered a job teaching at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. In the 1930s. And anthropology was not a very robust discipline in France in that period. So he went to Brazil, and in Brazil, he undertook to do some field work. Interestingly, it's almost the only field work that Levi Strauss ever did, even though he's an extremely famous anthropologist. And he went into the interior of Brazil uh, on expeditions to meet indigenous peoples who were living in a pre modern. Life. Uh, and uh, he made a lot of notes. He collected a lot of artifacts. He actually took a lot of pictures. He made a movie uh, documentary of these people. Uh, so we had a massive amount of material. He goes back to France. And then in 1940, as we've said, the Germans invade, occupy Paris, and Levi Strauss is Jewish. And he has to flee. In his case, his sponsor here was the New School, which had a program for emigre scholars. And he, because he'd already published some pieces that were notable in anthropology journals in the US, he was, he was a known quantity. So he came here to the New School in, I think, 1940 or 1941. And he had all this material that he collected in Brazil. He didn't know what to do with it. Um, so At the New School, he met another emigre named Roman Jakobsen, who was a linguist. Jakobson's story was sort of similar to Levi-Strauss's, only a little bit more fraught because he was from Moscow, born in Moscow. He moved to Prague, married a Czech woman. And then when Germany uh, annexed Czechoslovakia, he had to flee. He went to Denmark, and of course then Germany invaded Denmark. He went to Norway, Germany invaded Norway. He went to Sweden, and from Sweden he was able to get to New York, and he met Levi-Strauss at the New School. Um, at that point, there was a separate academy called École Libre des détudes which was for French-speaking scholars, emigre scholars. So they met, and uh, Jakobsen gave this series of lectures uh, that Levi-Strauss attended. Without any idea, Levi-Strauss had really no idea what Jakobsen was going to talk about. And Jakobsen's subject was phonology. It was the study of languages. And his argument was that as Levi-Strauss had done in Brazil, linguists had accumulated massive amounts of data about the sounds that people make when they speak. So there's all this study of vocal um, vocalizations and how sounds are produced and then how languages are created and so forth. But Levi-Strauss said, um, when you look at all the languages in the world, they all just look different. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of language? And the answer is to communicate. Sounds pretty obvious, but Jakob said nobody really asked that question before. And then, if we assume the purpose of language is to communicate, then we have to understand that all these sounds that people make have to be organized in a way that allows them to communicate with other people who are in the same language group. And he called this the invariance underneath the variety. So the variety of is the, what you see on the surface, which is that all languages are wildly different from one another, but the invariants are. The elements that go to make up phonological systems that from which people produce uh, languages, and those elements are a a finite number of sounds that we can make. He thought that there were twelve, and these sounds are organized in binaries, Uh, so open or closed, you know, nasal or consonantal or whatever. So all these—I can't remember all the terms are—but these are basically binaries, and that are the twelve in varying, unvarying binaries, and from these binaries that are sounds that the vocal apparatus of human beings are capable of making and understanding that you can understand through the ear and the mind, uh, different language groups pick their own binaries and from those they construct their own linguistic systems. So for Levi Strauss, what this meant was that the material that he collected in these, in these indigenous populations in Brazil, a lot of which involved myths could be thought of in the same way as that each indigenous peoples, because they live essentially independent of one another at that point in Brazil, uh, had their own body of myths, customs, kinship systems, housing arrangements, tattoos, you name it, um, all of which were coherent in the context of the people living in that community and would seem foreign to people living in a different indigenous community. But at the bottom of these social, sy- cultural systems were these invariants. So that just as there are only 12, uh, binaries that go to make up all language groups. So there's a finite number of myth themes, mythic elements that go to make up the mythology of different, uh, different indigenous peoples. So that was how Levy Strauss got structural anthropology out of listening to Jakobson. And they remained very good friends, uh, for a long time. And they have a very extensive correspondence. Jakobsen stayed in the U S because he could not go back to Czechoslovakia, um, after the war and taught at Harvard and MIT Lévi-Strauss was able to go back to France and he had a long career uh, in the French Academy.
1: So I know Isaiah Berlin's this similarly uh, pretty uh, uh, expansive topic just by himself. Um, Let's approach it this way. How did he uh, come to his his turn to the history of ideas? Um, And if he can maybe address his criticism of the Marxian historical materialism or determinism. Um, And then, of course, uh, two concepts of liberty.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's big enough. Uh, So Berlin, of course, was a Russian born in Russia. And he came to Britain um, after the outbreak of the Bolshevik revolution, 1917, uh, his family was fairly well off. Uh, and, uh, his father had British contacts through his business. Uh, so, so, you know, they were fairly comfortable in Britain and he retained Berlin retained his fluency in Russian though, of course also learned English. Uh, and he went to Oxford to study philosophy. And at that time, um, Oxford philosophy was very influenced by logical positivism. It was not very much what we would call today continental in terms of its perspectives. And Berlin was very taken, really, by this originally, but he became to feel it was sterile. Um, And he kind of was looking for a way to get out of writing academic philosophy. He just, he didn't have a taste for it. He didn't really see the point of it. Um, So... Uh, in the 1930s, he got a commission um, to write a book about Karl Marx for a series uh, that somebody was – I can't remember who the publisher was. Um, and he actually never read any Marx. It's like 1937, 1938, um, even though he was Russian, <laughs> even though Marxism was a very big thing in the 1930s in Britain and elsewhere among intellectuals. He said he never really read any Marx, so he took the assignment on, I think, partly to educate himself, which is often why one writes a book, and he produced this book on Karl Marx that is still in print. It's quite a good book. He's not completely unsympathetic to Marx, but, of course, what he doesn't like about Marxist thought is the historical determinism that it subscribes to, that, that, that history is unfolding in a predicted way that will ultimately lead to the overthrow of the ruling class, capitalist societies, and its replacement by a classless society or communist society. And that's the vision that informs Marx and Engels' thought. So what Berlin didn't like about that was the idea that a certain group of people, as we would say, the vanguard of the revolution, grasp the historical situation and understand what the future has and then feels empowered uh, by this knowledge to coerce people to that in that direction. In other words, to undertake a revolution Uh, and that the outcome of the revolution is what they predict will be what, what they predict will be communism based on this theory of history. So, Berlin didn't like any kind of determinism. Very few people really do, unless they're on the right side of it. Um, and he, what he particularly didn't like was the idea that people are unfree in the life they're living under the capitalist system, where both the ruling class and the pro- proletariat are locked into these social roles that they've not chosen for themselves, but that are produced by the economic system that they're bound up in. They're not free until they have been freed by a communist revolutionary who can tell them what true freedom really is. So that's the nut of the essay that you're referring to, Two Concepts of Liberty, which he wrote in 1958, which he describes two kinds of liberty, freedom from, which is, we would say, kind of a libertarian idea of freedom, which is freedom consists of not being coerced by anybody else to do anything, and freedom for, which is you're free if your freedom is tied to some other good in this case um, state ownership of production or the class of society um, so Berlin's argument there is that freedom for is is a mixed concept because or contradictory concept because it 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 substitutes for what real freedom is which is the absence of constraint on you freedom from substitutes for that some other value like equality um, and he thought that that leads to coercion so he He's very sympathetic to Trilling. I mean, they're very similar thinkers, even though he didn't really like Trilling. He didn't think it was Trilling was a lot of fun, um, but they were had the same idea, which is that people get caught up in this idea that we'll have the we'll feel truly free or truly liberated once we have this communist revolution, um, and that that leads to sort of the fellow traveling mentality that Trilling criticized.
1: So in your book, you talk about, uh, or you discuss, excuse me, uh, popular art pieces, uh, the post-war paperback revolution, Warren Court rulings, and anti-anti obscenity litigation. Um, if you know, if you could talk, if you can elucidate that a little bit, and um, I guess in the context of Berlin, are all these examples of negative liberty? Why or why not?
0: Yeah, um, I think the dichotomy negative and positive liberty is a bit of a false dichotomy because. All freedoms, so to the extent that freedom, to, so I'll put it differently, What we normally mean by freedom in the United States are enumerated rights under the Constitution. So those freedoms are state-created and they're state-maintained. a state of nature, Ryan, if I don't like what you're saying, you know, I would eat you up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I can't do that because you have a constitutional liberty, which is a protected zone for your speech. So uh, why do we protect these various liberties that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, confers on individuals to protect them for the social good? So there's a way in which all freedoms are freedom for. Um, there's no such thing as freedom from without some state interest in why it's a freedom. Um, so, so, in trying to, so when we tr- come to the point of like, oh, is this freedom from or freedom for? I think we're dealing with uh, a false economy. Because freedom of expression or freedom of thought was the leading propaganda principle in American foreign policy in the Cold War, because it was easiest to draw a contrast between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in that area, the liberty of people to express themselves or to paint what they wanted and so forth, uh, because clearly there was censorship in the Soviet Union, Um, it coerced the United States, it forced the United States to open up its own zone of protection for expression. So we talk about the Warren court as essentially the instrument of Earl Warren, who was made chief justice in 1954, but really the Warren court was responding to essentially foreign policy imperatives because it was, uh, it was making deciding cases that expanded the zone of protected political speech and curtailed the ability of the state to investigate citizens for their political views. And then shortly after that, expanded the zone of artistic expression to include something which had never been covered before by the First Amendment, obscenity. So obscenity is still not covered by the First Amendment, but it's been defined by the court in such a way that it's almost impossible to convict any expression of obscenity. Um, so that protection expands dramatically in the 1960s. You can see it most easily in book publishing, where in the 1950s people were anxious about even the most elliptical references to sex acts. By the end of the 1960s, that's basically all, basically it's all you can read about. Fortnite's complaint, couples, you know, books like that. Um, so, uh, so that's something that happens in the Cold War period because of the Cold War, not just because society naturally opened up, but society opened up because the United States had a stake in showing the rest of the world that it was genuinely committed to freedom of expression.
1: So James Baldwin, he's also a pretty expansive topic. Um, how does how did his search for identity intersect with his engagement in the early uh, civil rights movement? And um, if you can also address uh, Hannah Arendt's critique of uh, Baldwin and the idea of negritude.
0: Yeah, I'm going to skip the negritude part. So, Sounds good. <laughs> Because that's a 30s thing, really. But um, yeah, Baldwin is a really complicated character. Um, I've spent a long time trying to understand him. Um, He's very unpredictable. He he does things you think. Why is he doing that? Why is he saying that? And then it it works out for him in a a way, uh, usually. Um, So one interesting fact about Baldwin is that he spent about eight years living in Paris after the war. Um, uh, he had suffered from racial dis- discrimination and homophobia in the U S he wanted to get out, go somewhere where those wouldn't be such issues for him. And he chose Paris. He claimed that he chose Paris at random, but that's clearly false because a lot of Americans went to Paris, uh, after the war It was just as popular after the war as it was in the 1920s for Americans. Um, and. It was also particularly popular for black Americans for the reasons that Baldwin went there. And it was also, he went there because Richard Wright had moved there. Richard Wright was the leading black author in the world in the late 1940s, the author of Native Son and the autobiography, Black Boy. And Baldwin knew Wright. Um, That's a complicated relationship that I won't try to get into. So he spends eight years in Paris. What's going on in France in the 1950s? What's going on in France is decolonization because this is the great period from 1945 to 1970, when all of these former European colonies all across the world are becoming independent, sovereign states governed by non-white peoples. So um, Baldwin is exposed to the discussions about decolonization in Paris in the 1950s, because remember that France, of course, was a great imperial power, and it lost two of its colonies through terrible wars, uh, the war in Indochina and then the Algerian War. And French intellectuals were obsessed with particularly the Algerian War. Um, so Baldwin comes back to the United States, I think in 1957, um, just as the civil rights movement is getting traction after the success of the Montgomery Boycott what boycott, and he meets Martin Luther King Jr. He's very impressed by King. Baldwin had known a lot of preachers. His father was a preacher in Harlem. Uh, he didn't trust them, but he thought King was a great man, um, which he was. And he became kind of a unappointed spokesman for the civil rights movement. He didn't like he didn't like to be called a spokesman, but he was treated as a spokesman by by the white press. So he becomes a public intellectual, uh, and he becomes. Uh, a person whose views are widely sought and he widely gives them um, and in 1962 he publishes his third novel it's called Another Country it becomes a bestseller and then in 1963 he publishes The Fire Next Time his most famous book and that becomes a bestseller and his face on the cover of Time magazine and then there's this white backlash, liberal backlash against Baldwin that I Document in the free world. Nahane Rent's one of the people who uh, who starts to criticize him. Without going into the details of what these different people—Susan Sontag, Hannah Rent, um, F.W. Dupuy—was member of the Columbia English Department, Robert Brustein, soon to be dean of the Yale School of Drama—I'm not going to get into like the details of how they critique Bolland, But what's notable about it is that suddenly, around 1963, there's this big white liberal backlash against Baldwin, and he essentially gets marginalized. Um, He leaves the U.S., he goes to live in Turkey, where he has friends, and then he goes to live in the south of France, where he owned a house. His later novels get basically panned by white reviewers. He starts to identify with people like Stokely Carmichael, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, the Panthers, and so on. So he essentially moves out of the mainstream, um, and he becomes kind of a discarded figure. I tell a story that when Henry Louis Gates Jr. was young, he was a reporter for time magazine and he went to France to interview Baldwin and he sent the story into time and they said, nobody's interested in Baldwin anymore and rejected it. It's probably 1972 or so. So, um, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting phenomenon. What, what, why was that? I think the reason was that, and the, which is similar to the reason why Baldwin had a Renaissance has had a renaissance in the U.S. in the last four or five years, is that he was saying to white liberals in the early 1960s what a lot of Black Lives Matter protesters were saying in the U.S. in the last three or four years, which is that white liberals, too, have to own their role in the regime of white supremacy. They're part of it. And white liberals don't like to hear that because white liberals think that they're enlightened, unprejudiced people. They don't want to be told that they're part of A system of oppression. So that was not popular when Baldwin said it. To his credit, he stuck to his guns, but he paid a price for that.
1: So what was the American New Criticism's Southern critique of industrial capitalism? I suppose you have to address exactly what the American New Criticism was. I know you've written in the past on T.S. Eliot.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the New Criticism, in a nutshell is the practice of close reading, we call it, works of literature, particularly poetry, attempt to extract meanings from the text on the page. And in its most extreme form, which nobody really practices, but it's that's sort of the ideology, you don't include in your understanding of a poem biographical information about the author, historical information about the period in which it was written, and so forth. You don't historicize it; you just treat it as words on a page, and then you try to explore the various meanings that those words have. And if you look closely at a lot of poetry, particularly the kind of poetry that the New Critics liked um, and liked to write about, it's highly complex. These are highly complex verbal artifacts that are can be opened up in lots of mul- in multiple ways. Um, the origins of this form of reading date back to Britain in the late 19, 1919s and 1920s, and partly to T.S. Eliot, who was an expatriate, who moved to London in 1914, um, partly to the Cambridge School of Criticism, which includes people like I.A. Richards and William Empson. Um, but So it, it's, it, it wasn't invented by the new critics, but they adapted it to the American Academy, and they had a big influence on American academic literary criticism right up through the 1950s. Um, and then, really, that mode of criticism that we call close reading has never been displaced in English, even in English departments today, like my own English department. That's basically the default mode. That's how you teach poetry. Um, so, so that has its origins with American New Critics. So, your question is, what was their ideology? So, they, American New Critics, were virtually all from the South uh, or from border states, slave states like Maryland, Kentucky. Um, and a lot of them went to um, Vanderbilt University uh, and they taught in southern universities like LSU, Louisiana State, uh, until almost all of them moved north sort of in the 1940s. And several of them ended up at Yale, which made Yale sort of the leading English department in the country. Their southernness manifested itself in their hostility to industrial capitalism. So... Their racial politics are a little bit complicated. We don't need to get into it, but they were not exactly liberal. But beyond that, they disliked the scientific worldview. They disliked the secular humanist worldview, and they disliked industrial capitalism. They were champions of sort of back to the land, agricultural economies, small communities, not heterogeneous communities, homogeneous communities, uh, and faith, Christian faith. A lot of them were had their parents were women ministers. So what's interesting about the New Critics is that the post-war university is basically the model institution for the liberal industrial state. That's what it exists for, to train workers for that state. So it's fascinating that the school of literary criticism that's dominant in this period has a completely reactionary politics.
1: So uh, what exactly was the San Francisco renaissance and the beats as cause celebs. And I know this is a component of a chapter in your book. And uh, by way of explanation, I am um, as an undergrad, I um, used to haunt, or I guess troll, however you look at it, the, the city lights. And I, I guess everybody does that, but like, um, you know, I, I want to take my, uh, my, uh, my wife there and perhaps, and, and our daughter there at one point um, just because it's, it was part of my undergraduate experience.
0: Yeah yeah it's still there city lights bookshop uh, it was founded in 1953 or four by Ferlinghetti, getty um and uh yeah it's still it's, it's still there i went there when i went to san francisco i checked it out and they have a little beat section in it um so uh to answer your question i'm not sure it's really an important distinction but the beat the beat figures the major beat figures were all from new york um where they got together in New York, Ginsburg, Jack Kerouac,
1: William Burroughs. It's important to note.
0: Yeah. Gregory Corso. So they get associated with the San Francisco Bay area poets because, uh, Ginsburg wrote Howl in San Francisco. So after he left Columbia, he was in a psychiatric institution for a period. And then he moved out to San Francisco and that's where he wrote Howl, And, he, as I said, gave the first reading of Howell at the Sixth Gallery, which is in North Beach, an art gallery in North Beach, um, six S-I-X, dot S-I-C-K-S. And um, that was a group reading. And the other poets in the group were all West Coast poets, like Philip Whalen, Canucks Rathroth, roth uh, Michael McClure. Uh, so there was a whole West Coast poetry scene, which was independent of what was going on in New York. We started around the University of San Francisco in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and had a lot of very strong poets associated with it. I think the most strongest is probably Gary Snyder. So uh, so Ginsburg becomes part of that scene and by virtue of simply of living in San Francisco at that point, and Kerouac is also there with him. So they, they start to be thought of as West Coast poets, even though they're Ginsburg's from New Jersey and Cairox from Massachusetts. Uh, and then when Nevergreen Review publishes this volume on San Francisco poets, they're in the volume. Um, so the beats and the San Francisco poets have a lot in common, but they're not identical.
1: So uh, Paul DeMann, um, I guess the best approach f- uh, for me to take this, What what what's your take on uh, Paul DeMann? I know you may have colleagues that are, that, you know, encountered him in their schooling. Um, and it's, you know, it, perhaps in answering that question, um, um, if you can talk about the 1966 Johns Hopkins conference with Jacques Derrida, that would be helpful, but yeah. um, just, you know, what, how, how do you, how did, how did you approach Paul De Man in your, bro- in your book?
0: <laughs> well, uh, there's two sides to Paul De Man, and you know, he's Belgian and he comes to the United States <clears throat> Um, after the war, essentially because he was escaping prosecution for various misdeeds, mainly financial misdeeds uh, in uh, Brussels. And uh, he gets here without a passport um, and manages to uh, work his way into various intellectual circles, ends up teaching at Bard College through connections. I think the main connection there was Mary McCarthy, who really admired him found him attractive. Um, and from there, he goes to Harvard, uh, graduate school at Harvard, even though he didn't have an undergraduate degree. He lied about that um, and gets his PhD. And then this is a period around 1960 when uh, the higher education world is expanding rapidly and there are all kinds of jobs available all over the place. And he gets a job at Cornell, and then he uh, moves from Cornell to Yale. Then he's a fixture of the Yale literary scene. He's actually in comparative literature department there until his death, uh, I think, in the early 1980s. And um, he is the person who really brought deconstruction to literature departments in the United States. Um, and he was influenced partly by Jacques Derrida, whom he met uh, for the first time at Johns Hopkins, where there was a famous... Conference on structuralism that Derrida was invited to in 1966, and Derrida gave a paper called Structure Sign in and Play and the Discourse of the Human Sciences, which is a big bombshell because it basically blew up structuralism as a theory. And, and that paper introduces deconstruction to American audiences. Uh, so Demand is at that conference and he meets Derrida. He's read some of his work in French already. Uh, and they become friends, and then later on, when Demand is at Yale, he brings Derrida to teach there. I think six months a year, or some such arrangement, for quite a while. So Derrida is a fixture of the Yale scene as well. Um, so, so on the one side, Demand had a very sketchy past. Um, he was a bigamist, in addition to all the other things that he did. Uh, he had a tendency not to pay his bills and so forth. It's interesting that somebody who's basically a fugitive from Europe, coming to the United States to escape prosecution, would choose to associate himself with a very high profile, controversial literary movement, deconstruction, but he did it. Um, He seems to have straightened out um, once he got into the academic world. Um, There's no other stories of any particular malfeasances on his part, but he's a very complicated character. The deconstruction side, um, I can't do justice to this problem in a few minutes, but deconstruction is grossly misunderstood by most people, in particular, I would say, the American media. It's kind of a nihilistic, uh, nothing is real, nothing means anything philosophy, which it's not. Um, it's a way of treating language. Um, it's not really inconsistent with structuralism. It's just decentered structuralism. Um, and uh, sort of opens up interpretation from what the new critics. The structuralists were doing, to a much broader idea of what's possible when you interpret a work of literature. For deconstructionists, you're looking for binaries within a text that create a tension, and that's kind of what you're searching for. So the new critics of the 1950s were looking for things like paradox and ambiguity, for the deconstructionist. You're looking for binaries that you could put pressure on to show that the text isn't meaning exactly what it says or seems to say. That's all it is. It's just a method of close reading. It's not demand. You know, de- de- man used to say, don't try to live your life this way. It's not a, it's not a method of living, but for some reason, um, it gets caricatured, uh, in the popular press and to this day,
1: how did the efflorescence of post-war comic books, um, not so much advance, but portray violence against women in the context of regulatory hearings. And what about literature in Norman Mailer's stabbing of his wife?
0: What about Norman Mailer's stabbing of his wife?
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <so laughs> comic books. It's interesting about the comic book situation. The comic books was a huge industry uh, in the forties and fifties. Um, a lot of GIs read comic books and carried them around the globe. So, you know, people around the world, Saw American comic books, and then after the war, uh, it's, it's, their publishing numbers are enormous for the number of comic books that are published every month, and the number of people who read them. And al- almost all these people are children. And in 1954, I think that's the correct year. Uh, there was a hearing into juvenile delinquency, a uh, congressional hearing, and one of the subjects that the committee Took up was whether comic books were a cause of juvenile delinquency. Juvenile delinquency was one of these um, obsessions of the 1950s. Actually, there was no particular rise in juvenile crime in that period. There's a huge rise in the 60s. But in the 1950s, people were sort of obsessed with this idea that, that juvenile delinquency was a kind of disease. So the concern was that comic books are contributing to that. And the result of the hearings was that the comic book industry basically undertook to reform itself. And it produced, the industry produced a code, very similar to the Hollywood production code, which specified what you couldn't, could not show in a comic book. Um, Basically took the sex and violence out of comics. um, And they never really recovered for a very long time. Um, So uh, when people write about this Period, they tend to portray this as the government censoring out of prudishness a kind of free form, satirical, edgy, uh, very popular art form. Um, But I don't think that's really what was at stake. What was at stake was exactly what was being represented in these comic books. So there's a fair amount of material that is racial form of racial caricature, particularly of Asians, but also of blacks. And then overwhelmingly is the representation of violence against women. Women are tied up, they're beaten up, they're beheaded, they're all kinds of they're tat- branded and tattooed, they're whipped. All kinds of violent scenes of um, men perpetrating violence on women are in these comic books, which are consumed by kids, twelve year olds, ten year olds. And one of the leading crusaders against comics, Frederick Wortham, wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent. That was a leading theme of his criticism was that little boys are learning from these comic books that it's a turn on to hurt women. Um, And that can't be a good thing. Um, So what I suggest in the book is that this is a common theme in 50s popular culture, this idea of violence against women, um, and the idea that it's somehow turn-on or sexy uh, to beat a woman or to whip a woman or to somehow, you know, hurt a woman, or that it's natural for husbands to want to kill their wives when they get tired of them. So I give some examples from popular fiction. Almost all of sort of what we would call uh, detective fiction or hard-boiled fiction of this period. Almost all of it involves... Some kind of violence against women, or women who kill men, usually while they're wearing a negligee or something. Those are the covers of these novels. So Mickey Spillane novels, for example, um, James Bond novels. You know, that's all. They're all about that. And so, one real-life connection to show that these representations are not without influence is what happened when Norman Mailer uh, stabbed his second wife, Adele. That took place. In the fall of 1960, uh, the Mailers were having a big party at their apartment it was on the Upper West Side, and at some point, very late in the party, two or three in the morning, Mailer stabbed Adele twice, and one of the stab wounds was very close to her heart, and it pierced the membrane around the heart, and she went to the hospital and they had to perform surgery on her for a long time to save her life so he came very close to killing her probably within an eighth of an inch Um, and Mailer's mother went to the hospital room to see Adele for the purpose of telling her not to press charges and to claim that the wound was a result of falling on a broken bottle because Mailer was a great genius and it would ruin his career he had to go to jail (laughs) for attempting to murder his wife Uh, And then a lot of intellectuals in the New York world, people who knew the Mailers, like the Trillings, for example, also thought that it was really Adele's fault. And that Mailer was, as Lionel Trilling put it, testing in a Dostoevsky way the limits of evil in himself. And James Baldwin thought he had to escape from the public role that he had uh, had assumed to get back to being an artist, and so there was this huge outpouring of sympathy for Mailer as somehow the victim of this attack. And then Mailer is in Bellevue for a fairly short amount of time, I think a few weeks. And he, although there's a court proceeding goes on for about a year, he is never forced, he never convicted of anything. He doesn't have to go to jail. Um, and then his next novel is called American Dream*. And the novel is about a man who kills his wife or his ex-wife. I can't remember if she's his wife or his ex-wife. After he strangles her to death, he goes downstairs and has sex with her maid. Then he goes back upstairs, throws the wife's body out the window. There, she said lives in an apartment building. Goes back downstairs, has sex again with the maid. In case <laughs> you missed the point, that violence against women is a turn-on, and then he escapes, and they're not able to convict him. And I read all the reviews in major publications of An American Dream, and none of them mentions the fact that this novel about a man who kills his wife and gets away with it was written by a man who had almost killed his wife and gotten away <laughs> with it. Somehow it just gets erased. And Naylor becomes develops this huge cachet about his personality in the 1960s, which is a great period for him, uh, in a way that stabbing seems to have contributed to that reputation. So it's it's kind of an example of how even among intellectuals and even when real people are involved in people, they knew, they knew Adele Mailer. Uh, they still thought this was all acceptable. So it's a pretty astonishing. Look at why the women's movement came into being what it did.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, Tom Hayden, um, as uh, listeners know, he's, he was a leader in the students for a democratic society out of Michigan and um, author of the uh, letter to the new left and uh, the 1962 Port Huron statement. So, how significant was the perhaps uh, presumption um, of marginal wealth, wealth differences between the middle and upper classes, as well as the writings of C. Wright Mills, in shaping Tom Hayden's ideas?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, Tom Hayden um, was a founder of STS in 1962. He was a student at the University of Michigan, which is really where STS originated, uh, and <clears throat> he didn't write a letter to the new left. He wrote a letter to the young new left. So let, the letter to the new left was written by C. Right. Excuse me.
1: The letter to the young, to, yeah. to the young, excuse me.
0: That, so that was written. So C. Right. Mills wrote this piece published in England in the new left review called journal called letter to the new left. And then Hayden read that and loved it. Then he wrote his own letter to the young new left. Um, so, um, as I said, a long time ago in our conversation, uh, the power elite was a big influence on Hayden um, and therefore on SDS. But it didn't have anything to do with wealth, with the wealth gap, because one of the interesting things about this period from 1950 to probably 1973 is that there was a much smaller gap in income and wealth between the top earners and the middle class than any time in history, and certainly than any time since. So the situation in the United States today, I don't have the numbers at the tip of my tongue, but the amount of wealth uh, owned by the top 1% versus the amount owned by the bottom 90%, that big gap um, is very much like it was in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and most of human history, in fact, the top 1% have a huge out of the wealth and the bottom 50% basically have nothing. So this is a very unusual period in terms of economic history because of the relative uh, equality of income and wealth. There's lots of reasons for that. Um, one, I think the, probably the main one is that the depression and second world war wiped out a lot of the owners of capital. So, you know, uh, they had to make it all back essentially, which they did. Um, so I don't think that people thought in the fifties and sixties, even radicals like, or radicals, even progressives like Hayden, that the wealth gap was the problem. They thought it was, the problem was the, um, was essentially Burnham's idea that the power was being monopolized by a fairly small group of people, all of whom were Protestant white males. And it was circulated among the three spheres that Mills identified in the power elite, uh, politicians, the military, and business. So Dwight Eisenhower, the president, was, of course, in the elite of the military establishment. Then he becomes president, the elite of the political establishment. And he appoints to his cabinet, uh, the corporate elite, members of the business, people from the business world. So this was the power elite that, uh, that Mills defined. And what he felt was that... The power, the concentration of power in this small group of men deprives citizens of full democratic participation in decision making. That's a Dewey idea, basically. And that was Hayden's idea too. So the purpose of Students for a Democratic Society in the first place was to enable students to feel empowered to participate in democratic decision making in a world that was increasingly dominated by elites and that's really what the word democratic and Students for a Democratic Society is all about. It wasn't an anti-war group in the beginning because the Vietnam War was just a flicker on the radar screen at that point. It really was about democratic empowerment. And the same thing true with the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, which I also write about in the book. That was also about giving students the right of political expression on campus, in this case at Berkeley, uh, as a way for them to participate democratically in institutional decision-making.
1: So at the end of your book, you talk about uh, the CIA um, and the significance or insignificance of its role in manufacturing domestic U.S. cultures and exporting said cultures abroad. Um, If you can address that really briefly and then, um, you know, perhaps explain why you decided to end your study with Vietnam.
0: So the CIA's role uh, has been much written about um, and, Uh, A lot of what's written about it is true. Some of what's written about it is somewhat misleading. Um, But from 1950, an office at the CIA that Kennan actually set up, and uh, the director of which Kennan helped appoint, kind of Frank Wisner, was involved in an enormous array of activities uh, covertly in the form of funding them, and by funding them, to some extent, controlling their agendas. And a lot of these activities were uh, political in nature. So political organizations, unions, and so on. Um, And in many cases, and probably in most cases, the people who were benefiting from this CIA funding were not cognizant of the origins of the monies that they were receiving. So the the idea was create dummy foundations and use those foundations as a front uh, or cutout to pass money to favored organizations uh, through. And the, one of those organizations was the National Student Association, which was a very large organization for American students, which had a lot of international outreach because they would go to conferences and so on with student organizations in other countries. The CIA basically funded the National Student Association without the knowledge of 99 percent of the membership of the organization, and this was revealed in an expose in 1967 by Ramparts Magazine, that then pulled the thread on the whole tapestry of CIA funding, so that it became clear the CIA had been involved in numerous. I can't even I can't even name half of them. Organizations and activities, including publishing books and so on, um, covertly the, probably the most famous example is the Congress for cultural freedom, which is supposedly an independent organization, uh, uh located in Paris that among other activities like funding world festivals and conferences and so forth to promote the idea of cultural freedom, um, published magazines in Britain, uh, France, Spain. Germany, I think in Italy, um, and the one in England was called Encounter. And unknowing, not uh, unknown to the people who contributed to Encounter, which were most of the important intellectuals in the United States in the 1950s, um, the editor of Encounter was a CIA agent. So when this was all exposed in 1967, it was a huge scandal because when you started looking back on the cultural activities of this period, including art exhibitions that were distri- that were um, sent abroad, uh, all kinds of other forms of cultural diplomacy, and particularly the activities of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the question was, who was calling the shots here? Were these people really independent, or were they actually uh, doing the bidding of the American government? Because the CAA, keep in mind, was not a rogue organization. It's part of the executive branch, It reports to the State Department and the president. They knew what the CIA was doing. This was not a secret. But the public didn't know, so it casts a very. This is the dark side of my cover, <laughs> uh, of the Statue of Liberty cover. It casts a very dark shadow over the whole post-war period, because it turns out that the United States was setting propaganda abroad to the uh, to say that the expression in the United States is not under the control of the state, but often doing this in the form of subvert. Uh, subvertly funded by the state uh, organizations and so on so so that was a big that was a big thing and it coincided of course with the situation in Vietnam So why do I say it's, some, it's somewhat exaggerated because I think the CIA's role in specifically cultural activities putting aside the Congress for cultural freedom which there's no question about um, is somewhat exaggerated So for example, it's often, claimed that the CIA was behind promoting abstract expressionist painting in the early 1950s with the implication this was part of some form of cultural imperialism that the American government was undertaking. There's actually no real evidence that anybody at the CIA thought about abstract expressionism specifically or thought about art in those terms. Because one of the things the American government wanted to show other countries, particularly in Western Europe, was that in the United States, there's a diversity of artistic styles that are acceptable. So the idea of promoting a single style of painting, like abstract expressionism, was not consistent with that message. Um, And when you really look at who was funding these traveling art shows and what the timing of them was, it's pretty clear that the abstract expressionists were not heavily promoted by the American government until 1958, when the Museum of Modern Art sends an exhibition of Abstract Expressionist painting and an exhibition of Pollock. Pollock had been dead now for two years abroad. By 1958, the whole art situation had changed. So, it's just—it's not—it's—it's—it's a—it's it's a, it's a, it's a it's very suspicious to think that somehow this was a, all a kind of tool of Cold War propaganda. So, in short, I think you have to you have to pick carefully um, when you look at the activities that were covertly funded by the government and those that were either sponsored by the State Department or, in the case of the visual arts, often by the Museum of Modern Art, uh, which were independent of uh, the kind of covert funding organizations that the CIA set up. Vietnam. So uh, the revelations about the CIA, they actually begin in 1965. That's actually when the Congress for Cultural Freedom is first outed as a CIA creature of the CIA. Um, and that is the year that the United States, in intervenes militarily in the war in Vietnam. And that just turns the page on the period that I'm writing about for two big reasons. One of them being that just everything's different after Vietnam because anti-war sentiment kind of dominates intellectual life and to a certain extent, uh, artistic, the world of art and letters too. So it just changes the temperature. Um, I mean, I was a young, Person then and I have very vivid memories of because my parents are very involved in politics very vivid memories of what the war did to the way people thought American life and you know it climaxed in this debacle of 1968 a year of assassinations and riots and so on so um, so that really marks a turning point in the story I'm trying to tell so I decided I would use 65 as kind of the uh, the goal line of my Of my narrative. A couple things I write about, um, notably in the movies, they are a little later, like 1967, but I didn't want to get into the Vietnam period because I felt that's a separate book. The second reason I ended with Vietnam is because of the crisis of containment. So in 1966, George Cannon goes to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and he's asked, is our intervention in South Vietnam dictated by your policy of containment? He doesn't have a good answer to that question because it's never completely clear whether the doctrine of containment included military force. But if you perceive a communist country, in this case, North Vietnam, which wasn't a real country, but in any case, was thought of as that as a real country, invading a non-communist country, South Vietnam, and wants to keep it in its box. You can't keep it in its box by sending Louis Armstrong, you know, on a Goodwill tour. You have to use force to counteract force. So it it seems to me a logical extension of the theory of containment is that you would intervene militarily because you have no other way of preventing the loss of territory to a communist group uh, except militarily. So this tied a lot of people in knots in the the late 1960s who were liberal anti-communists we were tied up in knots, as I said, about whether or not containment required the United States to bomb the North or to send the Marines, which we did. And of course, it escalated very quickly, and it was a disaster. We were caught in that war for eight years and couldn't get out of it. And the war went on itself went on for two more years. Um, so it, 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 that also marks a kind of end point to the story I was trying to tell, a story in which in 1945, the United States was looked upon as a, basically a benevolent, political, military, and economic power which was helping Europe to rebuild, helping Japan to rebuild extending loans to countries around the world exchanging art and ideas and books uh, and films with other countries around the world um, to a period after 1965 when it's regarded as uh, an imperialist and racist power Uh, at the same time in 1945 the United States is regarded as relatively negligible in the cultural world it's not really regarded as a serious civilization, in the way that France or Britain or even Russia were regarded. Um, in one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-five, that also has changed, and now the United States is at the center of an increasingly global world of culture.
1: You know, it's uh, time we should uh, wrap up here. I mean, there's your, your, your study's pretty pre- pre- prodigious and there's, you know, concepts and ideas and topics and people that we haven't hit, not just negritude. I mean, everything from Pollock's drip method to the history of rock and roll and Isaiah Berlin's dalliance in, 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 in Russia. Um, I do have one final question. Uh, if you can, uh, disclose, are you, uh, working on any, uh, additional projects, future projects? what's, what's next for you? I mean, I you're constantly writing, so
0: no, I'm going to do a lot of biking, and you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, the book, book took about ten years, and uh, I, mean, I was doing other things, but I spent a long time writing it, and um, that's part of the reason why it's so prodigious, which is to use your word, which is a nice word for it, just covers a lot of lot of stuff, and I would say a lot of stuff very much in depth. Um, so it was a lot of research and thinking, um, and then post production we had to make a lot of decisions about length and so on. So there's a lot of work went into the final product and I feel like taking a break for a little bit. Um, but as I suggested, there's a book in Vietnam and maybe God wants me to write that book. So we'll see.
1: All right. I hope God remembers a new books network for that particular project. If it comes to, uh, if you realize uh, those aspirations.
0: I hope hope he does too. All
1: right. Uh, So the book is uh, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, uh, published earlier this year. Um, Thank you for being on the show today, uh, Professor Menand. Thank you, Ryan. So this has been a production of New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. I was your, I am and will be and was your host, Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.